Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're continuing in our Genesis 1 through 11 series of God's story of beginnings. We are in part four of corruption, the second C that we, we are covering in our series. And we saw last time that the sin of Adam and Eve had grave consequences. Sin always has and always does, just as God promised. And we saw the consequences for the serpent, Satan, last time. Cursed to be on its belly, eating dust. And then the conflict that would go on between him, Satan, the devil, and the woman's seed. This was to culminate in the ultimate seed, Christ, the Messiah, Savior, coming, who will deliver the ultimate crushing blow to Satan's head in the end. And that's what God said to the serpent, to the devil, and to the woman. Gracious, holy God pronounced the curse of multiplied physical pain during pregnancy, during childbirth, along with the relational struggle of married life. This morning, we're going to see the sobering consequences of sin for the man, which we still experience today. A lesson from last time was that our sin never affects only us. Our sin affects others around us, in our families, in our church body, our friends, even acquaintances. And we may or may not notice that, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Hey, God knows, he notices, and God cares. Let me remind you of his warning to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20. I say Exodus chapter 20, bing, 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 ten commandments, right? Second commandment, verses four and five, he warned them. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Don't put anything in your life above God. You shall not worship them or serve them, God says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Listen, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations. In other words, our sins have consequences, serious consequences. Number one, they offend a holy, jealous God. Number two, it affects people, those who follow, maybe even of the next following generations, your kids, your grandchildren. Thank you, today's Grandparents' Day. Praise God for grandparents. And beyond, third and fourth generation, God says, right? So to be clear, um, this is not to excuse anyone of their own sins, right? God says every single person is accountable for themselves. And no matter our circumstances, no matter our background, our upbringing, our ethnicity, stable home, broken home, silver spoon, poverty stricken, doesn't matter. Each person is ultimately responsible for the life that God so graciously gave to them. But I want to give you good news today. Okay, whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, it's never too late to come to Christ. Never too late to trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. As long as you still have breath, it's not too late. So we'll say more on that a little bit later, but let's get into our our text here. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at these grave consequences for the man in verses 17 through 19. I read the whole passage uh, last time. So this time I'm just going to read verses 17 through 19, 
But just to let everyone know, this is God pronouncing his consequences, his curse even, upon Adam, the man, after Adam and Eve sinned against God. So if you would stand with me for just these three verses. Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19 is our text for today. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Please be seated. All right, so we're going to see this um, pretty self-explanatory physical curse. And then the second thing that I want to bring out today is the spiritual curse, which is kind of the broader picture. But the first thing is the physical curse. And notice in the first part of verse 17, to Adam, God said, and he speaks to Adam, the man, last here, right? He's already spoken to Satan. He's spoken to the woman. Notice that to the man, God introduces his punishment with a reiteration of what the man did wrong. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. This is a forceful reminder. And God is not like rubbing it in his face, but he is bringing it up again. Okay, You listened to your wife instead of listening to me to repeat, I commanded you. I commanded you not to to eat from that one tree. Okay, so he, he just lays it out there for Adam, the man. And perhaps this is because Adam bore the primary responsibility, the primary weight of responsibility, being the one who, who God spoke directly to, who received the command from God's voice. God reminds him of the serious offense by basically repeating what he did. So with that explanation, now comes the consequence And he says, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall grow. You'll eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat from it. You will eat bread. And so, listen, work was not a curse before Adam and Eve sinned. Okay? We all understand that today, right? Work was not a curse in the very, very beginning. Remember, God assigned Adam with Eve's help to do what? Yeah, to rule over creation, to subdue the earth, to cultivate and keep the beautiful garden that he made for him. This was work that would be blessed by God. It would produce food, abundance, growth, order, all things beautiful. And it would be satisfying work for the man and the woman doing this together okay, in their God-designed roles all while being fruitful and multiplying. Genesis 1.28, right? Having children to raise and be part of the human race who would continue to follow this creation mandate that God gave to the very first humans, Adam and Eve. God blessed them, Genesis 1.28 says, with this mandate to work, to be productive, to serve him, their creator. But now, now, the curse The curse is that man will need to do this same work, but with much toil and hardship and sweat, just 
to be able to survive. It's going to be hard to get things to grow from the ground, to be able to grow food, to eat, which, remember, humans at the time of creation were all vegetarians, so food would not be coming from animals yet at this point, only from the soil. So work is going to be difficult. It's now going to be a major struggle just to be able to eat and put food on the table for the man, for himself, and for his family. Because of Adam's sin, the ground is cursed with thorns and thistles and weeds and all the rest. The grave consequence is not that man has to work, but that the work will be toilsome. It affects the man's ability to provide. Look, if he doesn't persevere through this hardship, through this toilsome labor, it could mean starvation, a destitution. And I mentioned last time that the particular curses for the man and for the woman were purposeful by God, right? They strike us at the heart of our God-designed roles as men and women. To quote Gerhard von Rad, a theologian of, of old, he says, quote, As for the man, his punishment consists in the hardship and skimpiness of his livelihood, which he now must seek for himself. The woman's punishment struck at the deepest root of her being as wife and mother, The man's strikes at the innermost nerve of his life, his work, his activity, and provision for sustenance, end quote. So I want to take some time here for some implications and applications of this. I think um, unlike the the serpent and the woman, um, what the curse was and what the judgment and the consequences were um, is just, we had to work through that a little bit interpretation-wise, but here it's pretty simple, Right. So let's talk about some applications. And if you are a younger person here and you're a student and you're not quite working yet, maybe you can apply this to your your, um, student life, um, going to school, right? Um, So at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it, it says, because in it he rested from all his work which he had done, Genesis 2, verse 3, right? God ceased from his glorious work of creation and so set the pattern of work and rest for all of us, for all of humankind. But like everything else after the fall, when sin entered the human race, now all of us, we tend to mess up the work and rest balance that God ordained for us. There's the lazy bones syndrome on the one hand, and then the workaholics on the other. And I ask you this morning, which one do you tend toward? I think most of us understand that laziness is sin before God. But I sometimes wonder how seriously we take that sin. In today's world, it seems that everyone and everything is so employee rights focused that hard workers, like genuinely hard workers, are Hard to come by. Work smarter, not harder, is the mantra. It's the accepted mantra. Phrases like, I could have got such and such done, but I was just feeling lazy. That's that's said without any shame whatsoever. I'm just a lazy person, that's why I don't do that. And we don't think about the sin aspect of laziness. Let me remind you of some of God's wisdom. From Proverbs, Proverbs 10, verse 4 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand. In other words, lazy hands make for poverty. 
The next verse, Proverbs 10.5, says, He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps during harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Stark contrast there between someone who, who works diligently and prepares ahead versus the one who's scrambling during the time where they should be reaping. Proverbs 12, verse 11 says, He who tills his land, he who works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Once again, the contrast between wise living, wisdom, prudence, and foolishness, folly, wastefulness. Last proverb I'll give you, and there's uh, a score of them, but Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Which is to say, the sluggard's, the lazy person's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. It's made fat. So if the sluggard, sloth, laziness, procrastination, and all the rest, if that describes you or your mindset or your life today, God would have you see that being lazy is not acceptable. It's not just some bone that you have in your body, but it's it's sin to repent of. The last verse I'll give you on that is Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Again, wisdom and folly. Therefore, be careful how you walk, how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. We live in a sin-cursed world, so you need to make the most of your time. Redeem the time even. Buy it back. Make every moment count. So then do not be foolish, verse 17 says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God's will for you is to live wisely, honoring God, honoring the time and blessings and ability and resources and everything that he has given to you. Life is not about how much pleasure or chill out time or wasting your life glued to a screen. It's not about that. God says to be wise about how you spend your hours, your days. Hey, with every moment, right, and every minute, every hour, it's gone. It doesn't come back. You were created for more than just this time. And again, laziness, just like other sins, does not affect only you. It affects others around you as well. So having said that, on the one hand, just as laziness is a sin that does harm others eventually, so does overworking. So does overworking. In our country, there's AA, right? Alcoholics Anonymous. There's NA, Narcotics Anonymous. There's all sorts, gamblers and everything. I don't think there's a WA, Workaholics Anonymous. But consider this as one pastor writes, and listen carefully. If, because of your work, your family is disintegrating, your health is deteriorating, and time for God's priorities, like faithfully attending church and Bible study and serving in church, Bible reading and prayer, If those are disappearing, then it's safe to say that your schedule is at the very least incredibly unbalanced. As I mentioned back in Genesis 2, one of the reasons that God made the Sabbath for mankind is so that we will rest 
from our work regularly enough to worship him devotedly and to recuperate enough to sustain a long and productive and Christ-centered life. It's the long game, dear people, not the short game. Many of us are tempted to sin in this direction of overwork, somehow thinking that the world's going to end if we don't get our, our stuff done at work. We're like a Jack Bauer, right? What's that, 24? Or our company will go out of business. Our church will crumble if we're not always, always, always working, working, working. This can happen to pastors, students, homemakers, factory workers, Wall Street deal makers. Uh, back in my seminary days, um, at one point there was a particularly strong coffee for sale in the break room. Someone labeled it the Lazarus Blend. <laughs> the Lazarus Blend. Um, and many of us seminary students, we sported those uh, grocery bags under our eyes from lack of sleep. And we received comments like, um, you look like death. We took that as a compliment. Um, there was a constant balancing out of just everything uh, during our seminary days. And um, still today, still need to work out that, that balance. So it's easy to get caught up in overwork, even to be prideful about it. Some companies, you know, you've probably heard the stories, Amazon, Google, those tech corporations. Some demand that their employees work overtime. And if you're not able to give it your all for 80 hours a week, they see it as a major weakness. This is according to some who've been there and are out now. So let me offer a couple of reasons why some people overwork. Besides out of necessity or besides out of just the work culture, as I described, exploitation, um, just a couple of reasons here. Number one, over-dedication. Over-dedication. Some people don't need to work as much as they do, but they want to. They're devoted to their work beyond what is needed, and they sacrifice more than what's necessary. Usually is to pursue some personal objective. Okay, looking forward to retirement, looking, trying to get more money, a promotion, whatever it is. Others desire recognition from their coworkers, colleagues, neighbors, superiors. They want status, prestige that comes from having a job title or authority, power. But they sacrifice that work-life balance in the present for things that are not going to last. And uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, the parable that he gives, Luke chapter 12, verses 19 to 21, and he's describing a rich man who's, who's got those bigger barns and he's accumulating all this stuff. And he says to himself, I will say to my soul, this rich man, he says, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease and eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And Jesus ends it by saying, so, so, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Luke 12, very helpful parable there where Jesus describes someone who thinks like that, who lives like that as a fool foolishness in contrast to second Corinthians eight, uh, which I read earlier 
And, and God says uh, of them, commending them for their desire to give, their desire to not just think of themselves, but others. So over-dedication is one. The second thing is uh, avoidance. Avoidance is why other people overwork. Some people simply prefer working more than not working. But oftentimes, this is, a, this is an indication that there's something missing in their lives. They're trying to fill it with work or escape it by work. Or work is the safe place to avoid other things. Even though work is hard, it's toilsome. But they'd rather do that than deal with other responsibilities. And it's like the man who stays at work longer than needed because he doesn't want to deal with his marriage or kids or family issues. But again, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6, the Bible says, One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Ecclesiastes 4, 6. It's not, that's not an encouragement to be lazy and just to take it easy all the time. But he's contrasting that with um, real good rest. Okay, One hand full of rest, replenishment, is better than two fists full of labor spent on basically yourself. And he says it's like striving after wind. God's word says we need to balance work with rest so we can learn to enjoy his gifts. Okay, work is actually good, and we are to redeem it. Ephesians 5 again. We're to make it count for God. He provided work as the means to meet our needs for us, for our families, and for others. Food, shelter, necessities of life. So oftentimes we separate work from worship, but I want to remind you this morning that every day is worship. Worship doesn't end when we leave this church building in a, just a, at the end of this worship service. Monday through Saturday is worship. Our work is worship. It can even be an admirable act of worship to work and feed our family, provide everything that is needed, and beyond that. So this is what life is all about, right? And so in the command section of the precious letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 Again, this is for whether you are a worker at a company or you're just you're, you're an employee or employer in the work world or you are a student in school. And that's your, your calling right now. Colossians 3, 23, 24 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, okay, from the heart, from the soul, genuinely, as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ, the Messiah, whom you serve. Colossians 3. Love it. So, I was going to come out with all that uh, during our, our time in Genesis chapter 2 and explaining about the Sabbath and rest, but here it is. Okay, So, um, I hope we can take those words to, to heart uh, this morning. Um, but we got to continue, all right? There could be more said there. The end of verse 19. The end of verse 19 says, Till you return to the ground. You're going to be working. Until you return to the ground. By the sweat of your face, you're going to eat bread. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust. 
and to dust you shall return. So this toil will last until death. I mean, we have retirement here um, in this blessed country, but um, I suppose some work is going to go on till you return to the ground, God says. And he says this is because from it, the ground you were taken. Right. Do you remember Genesis two, verse seven, that creation rewind? It says, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. And this is physically where what we're made of, where we came from. So this is the curse of death for mankind. And his physical body will return to the ground when he dies. Instead of living forever, instead of experiencing physical immortality, people would now die physically and experience death. This is what God promised would surely happen if they disobeyed him by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? Surely you will die in the day. And so that brought on the death, the curse of death. And, of course, Adam's sin against God affected not only him, like I keep saying, but all people for all time, right? Sin has grave consequences. Grave consequences. In other words, death. Adam and Eve's rebellion against God was, was cosmic, it was devastating, it was historic, it was epic in proportion. And so Romans 5, verse 12 again, and we're going to hit this uh, more and more in the coming weeks, but Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, who was that one man? Adam, yes. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We have inherited the curse of physical death from Adam and Eve. That's true. But most significantly, most primarily, the curse upon humans was spiritual. As I said a few weeks ago, the sin caused us to be separated from God. Enemies with God, our creator. Hostility against God, a ruptured, broken, torn up fellowship, torn up relationship. Human sinful bent towards self means that we don't love God. We don't know God and we don't want to know God. The fall brought ruin, utter ruin to man's relationship with God. Remember a few verses before Genesis three, verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God. Right after they ate from the tree and the man and his wife hid themselves and the man has been running from God with his guilty conscience ever since that time. Listen to this, folks. Um, Let's say a youth talks to his father. and He says, I don't want your counsel. I don't want your authority. I don't want your help. A youth like that cannot bear to be in the presence of his father. He doesn't want to be around him. Like that, all of us are homeless fugitives spiritually. We're always on the run until we just give it up and come back to God. So what are the consequences of sin? Well, since our happiness and joy and satisfaction no longer comes from a right relationship with God and fellowship with our creator... We try to get happiness from created things, right? We chase those things to try to be happy and fulfilled, whether it's work or entertainment or romance 
or money or sports or sex or achievements or accolades or activities. And I ask you, what are you chasing after today? What are you working for? What are you studying for? What are you living for? What what makes you fulfilled and happy and satisfied? In the end, chasing after happiness outside of knowing the true and living God is like King Solomon said, it's like chasing after the wind. It's like running after soap bubbles when we're kids. As soon as we touch it and catch it, it's gone. Our happiness lasts but a moment, temporarily satisfying us, but then it disappears. And someone described it like this. It's like biting our elbows. You can get so close, but you'll, you'll never reach it. Some of you really want to try that right now. <laughs> Do it after church. Okay. Some people don't, listen, some people don't have the proper balance, okay, laziness or overwork because they, they simply don't know Christ. They're still separated from the only source of real happiness. And I pray that that would not be true of any of you today. God created us and wired us to be happy in him. Just like in Adam and Eve were before they disobeyed God and ate from the tree. Okay? That's, that's what we're wired to be from the beginning. Happy in God. Our souls satisfied in knowing our creator. So how can we find happiness and joy and fulfillment in this sin-cursed world? Okay? We, we simply need to know God. And how do we do that? By faith. By faith. And then, as I pause there, some of you are asking, well, what is faith? And who are we supposed to have faith in? Well, the Bible's answer is that we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, the Word made flesh, the God-man. And having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ does not turn salvation into salvation by works. It just means that we have to know who it is that we're trusting. To quote the always helpful John Piper on things like this, the answer to the question, what is faith, is the most basic one of all. It is not a simple mental agreement to facts. Okay, not lordship facts, not savior facts. It's a heartfelt coming to Christ and resting in him for what he is and what he offers. Faith is an act of the heart that no longer hates the light, but comes to the light because a new set of spiritual taste buds have been created. And Christ now tastes satisfying to the soul. This notion of faith is taken mainly from the Gospel of John, where Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes, who has faith in me, shall never thirst. This view of faith implies that faith itself will invariably wean a person away from sin because faith is a resting in what Jesus has to offer, namely, the pathway of life and life eternal, end quote. 
What follows someone coming to faith in Christ? What follows, dear people? Obedience. Obedience. Fruit. That's right. And as uh, Pastor Bill was saying, praying before, uh, and what Dave was praying for earlier, that we would hear the word and apply it, obey it, keep it, doing what he says. And so, most specifically this morning, I'll ask you about the sin of sloth, laziness, if that's you, or the sin of overworking, being a workaholic, not prioritizing your time in a way that honors God or the people around you. Obedience, doing what Jesus says, whether it's in that area, since we're talking about work or any other area of your life. John Piper continues here and he says, obedience is not something that's artificially added to saving faith later after some second discovery in the Christian walk. It is what faith does because faith is the soul's cleaving to Jesus for forgiveness and for guidance and for hope that it needs to be happy. If you don't do what the doctor says, you don't trust him, end quote. Listen, if you don't do what the Lord Jesus says, you're not trusting him. So, I'm going to say something that sounds heretical right now. That sinners are saved by works. But what I mean by that is that sinners are saved by Jesus' works, not our own. All right? Jesus' work on the cross was all that was needed for sinners to be reconciled to God, to be saved from their sins. His perfect suffering, his loving sacrifice of death on the cross for our sins, it was like the bridge between this insurmountable, wide gap and chasm that's between us and a holy, righteous God. Jesus laid down his life, substituting himself, bearing all the blame, taking our sin and punishment for us. Everyone who trusts in him alone, believing that he rose from the dead, like he said he would, like he did, will receive the free gift of eternal life, forgiven forever for every wrong thing that you've done, thought, and said. And you'll be brought back to God. On the cross, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? One of seven things that he said on the cross recorded in scripture. He said, it is finished. What is finished? The work of salvation is finished. The debt that you owed and I owed was paid completely, utterly, absolutely paid. The atoning work and sacrifice that needed to be made for sinners to be brought back to God, redeemed, that we could never pay or do enough to be made right with God. Now, for everyone who trusts in him, who believes in him, will be saved and you will know him. He finished the work for us to be saved. So I want to conclude by reminding us, corruption, that's what happened in Genesis 3, those many thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden. Grave consequences, grave curses, grave judgments for that from a gracious, holy God. To the serpent, Satan, to the woman, to man, to all mankind, these are punishments imposed. And so, I'll end with this quote by Alan Ross. He says, Whereas the man and the woman once had life, they now had death. Whereas they once had pleasure, now pain. Whereas abundance, now a meager subsistence by toil. Whereas perfect fellowship, 
with God and with one another, now alienation and conflict. These motifs in chapter 3, death, toil, sweat, thorns, the tree, the struggle, and the seed, all were later traced to who? To Christ. He is the second Adam who became the curse, who sweat great drops of blood in bitter agony, who wore a crown of thorns. Cursed is the ground with thorns and thistles, right? Jesus was cursed with that crown of thorns on his bloody head, who was hanged on a tree until he was dead and who was placed in the dust of death. Listen, folks, he is a beautiful, wonderful, merciful Savior. He calls you to come to him today. Repent of your sins and throw yourself upon Christ. Believe in him. It's never too late. Turn from your sin now and turn to the only Savior and Lord that there is, Jesus Christ. The hope and the promise is that you'll be forgiven, reconciled to God, peace with God and your fellow man, (laughs) and the removal of the Genesis 3 curse is coming. Revelation 22. There's going to be a new heavens, new earth, new garden. And this is what we're promised as believers. Okay, let's pray. Gracious God, how wonderful it is to take in the beauty of your truth and your word and how convicting it is as we consider um, just the arena of work, God, which is such a huge part of our lives every day. And even as we consider the past or consider the future, whatever season of life we are in, I pray, God, that this has been both piercing and encouraging to everyone who has heard your word today. And I pray, God, that there would be none who would be left outside of your circle of blessing, your undeserved favor, the grace that comes only through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone for salvation. God, do your work through the proclamation of your word, and we will give you all the glory and praise for it. Because we pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.